this is like when Frazier left Cheers. Mm-hmm. Frazier. Mm. I'm say this is the idea. Is that him? Frazier. I say Frazier too. Frazier. Alright, the podcast hasn't started yet. We can save the bands. Hello and welcome to Quacks Who Quaff. Quacks Who Quaff. <laughs> I'm trying to pitch in, you know, we're going to play off each other a little bit, surely. Alright, fine. I thought I was doing a spiel. Alright, all right, you do spiel, you do spiel. Quacks Who Quaff sounds like a drug. It really does. You need, you need 20 cc's of Quacks Who Quaff. <laughs> Quacks Who Quaff. Okay. Welcome to Quacks Who Quaff, the podcast you didn't know you needed. Imagine a Venn diagram. On one side, you have podcasts about the history of medicine. On another side, you have podcasts that review wine. This one is right in the middle, where we discuss history of medicine and we talk about wine. My name is Jamie. I'm a teaching fellow in emergency medicine, and I'm delighted to be joined by Canal Go Hill, ED pharmacist. Hello, Canal. Dr Thomas, it's a pleasure to be with you again. I'm really looking forward to delivering this new podcast with you. It's very exciting. I think it's really interesting. I think people are going to be very entertained and informed by this podcast. Education is at its best entertainment, I believe. Absolutely. Agree. (laughs) Uh, We also have Kim, GPVTS ST1. Hello, Kim. Hello, Jamie. Thanks for letting me on your podcast. You're very welcome, Kim. Kim is post four nights. Hello. Uh, How are you feeling? Three hours sleep is plenty. And then reviewing wine is going to go very well, isn't it? Yeah. And we also have Bella. Hello, Bella. Uh, pharmacist. I need to say ED pharmacist. Pharmacist in obs and gynae. Yes. It's only a certain breed that can be ED pharmacists. I'll say cheers to that, Jamie. So the remit of Quacks Who Quaff is very, very simple. Uh, we talk about the history of medicine, anything to do within the history of medicine and pharmacy, obviously, uh, whilst we review a particular wine. Um, I pitched this idea to you last week uh, via WhatsApp and... You were very enthusiastic about the idea. Absolutely. I think from the uptake of our excellent Adverse Drug Reactions podcast in Annie's Burger Shack, which really connected with people and had the public service message that uh, we wanted to have, um, I think this is a really good venture going forward and it's going to be really informative. Excellent. And in no way just an excuse to drink wine. No, absolutely not. Um, So, Canal, would you like to pour us our wine, More than happy. It looks a beautiful-looking bottle here. I will pour it out. Uh, Here we are. It's pouring a beautiful ruby red. Thank you. It's looking really nice, looking lovely. It's a corked bottle, we should say. So you know you get those uh, screw-top bottles these days. This is classically corked bottle. So, guys, this is a Salici Salentino Reserva 2013. So it is an Italian red. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is... Uh, God, where is it? Lost all the information. Talk amongst yourselves. This is going to be so much editing. <laughs> so this is from the south of Italy. Uh, which is actually where my story comes from, so that's quite interesting. Nice. Links to this, wow, links to this wine. Link. Uh, it is a Malvasia Nera uh, grape, and it is 13% ABV. So, cheers, everyone. Cheers. 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 Let's have a little look. Have a little taste of that. Just a little swell. So, before we get started with our proper stories, then. I was going to, because it's called Quacks Who Quaff, which we've already decided sounds a bit like a drug, I was going to ask you guys, do you know why we call Dodgy Doctors Quacks, where that came from? I feel like I did know this story. I'm trying to remember it now. 
it's just like well the, the way a quack, a quack to me is like an American psychiatrist isn't it that's the mm-hmm. it's very Frasier <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that a quack not Frasier not no. Frasier just, we've decided we realised I can't pronounce that comedy show yeah that's it Fra- yeah. Fras- it's not Frasier because Frasier was never said in Frasier it was Frasier but I always thought a quack was a American psychiatrist i.e. a type of doctor that was a doctor but wasn't really a doctor yeah. but I don't know where the expression comes from must admit Kim? No, no idea where it comes from. It brings to mind the um, a bit like our logo, the the plague doctors with their long beak. Yeah, that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. But no, enlighten us. Bella, Indeed. do you want to have a guess? Mine would have been a similar guess to the American theory. Oh, so wrong country. We're yeah, going to go no. back to a time when America didn't exist. Oh, sad times. Sad times. Well, at least not in its current state. Uh, I'm going to go back to 1577. Wow. And we're going to go to the Dutch. Okay. And they had a word, which I'm going to massively mispronounce, called quacksalva. Quacksalva. Quacksalva, which is uh, an unscrupulous pretender or a quack. Got you. Yeah. So, so what's the literal translation of so, quacksalver? So quacksalver basically is from the obsolete Dutch. So quack meaning boast mm-hmm. and salve ointment. So we'd still say that, oh, wouldn't we? So you were a boastful ointment. Got ya. So yeah, so it was going back to the 16th century. Trying to soothe over people with your lives. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So yes. Yeah. That's, that's deep. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, back to 15, uh, yeah, 16th century Dutch, quacksalver. From quack meaning boast, salve meaning ointment, and from that we get the expression quack. That's that's really good. That's more deep than I thought. Maybe like my other theory would have been that you're just like you wouldn't want a duck that was your doctor, so you wouldn't want a quack. <laughs> that's quite literal. <laughs> that's quite. That, literal. Well, I wouldn't want a duck. It's a bit low. It's a bit low brow, isn't it? To be honest. Okay. That is low brow. Marvelous. Um, Canal, would you like to do your story first? Well, yeah, but more than happy. So, like, I'm really happy to participate in this podcast because one of the great things about pharmacy, particularly when we were studying pharmacy, me and Bella went back when we were in pharmacy school, pharmacology and the chemistry is all... Nah, it's not interesting, isn't it, really? It's very boring. It's, It's... important hello to any pharmacy student that might be listening it's incredibly the stories are interesting the chemistry incredibly important for your clinical practice going forward however i always found that the history of chemistry and the history of pharmacology were always very interesting so for me and i thought linking this back to some of our old podcasts so one of my favorite podcasts we did that was very informative was our anticoagulant uh, anticoagulation podcast is we could talk about the very interesting history of warfarin Mm. which is the well one of the most important anticoagulant drugs of all time probably saved a lot of lives a lot a lot of lives was the first well the first oral anticoagulant option that you'd use for thrombosis and this sort of thing and preventing strokes and PEs and all sorts of things like that so no doubt it saved a lot of lives but it's got a very interesting story that starts in the 1920s Mm. And this is interesting because it goes back to America. So I know our quacks didn't go back to America, but warfarin does go back to America. So we're in the 1920s, we're in America. We are, we are. So 1920s, we're in the North American heartland. Very much uh, farm county, as it was back then. And there was a new epidemic in the North American homestead where farming was probably one of the most... um, 
biggest businesses and incredibly driver of the economy at that time period. So they sold their milk and they sold their beef. That was a very big chunk of North American economy. So, still is now, became a big problem as it stood. And what it stood is all over North America, we found cattle dying for no particular reason, otherwise healthy, really healthy cattle that had no particular medical histories, that had no history of problems, that had no exogenous forces that would cause them to die. They were just dropping dead and dying. And when they were dropping dead and dying, and the vets were coming in at that point, they were dying of massive internal hemorrhages. Witchcraft. Witchcraft, you were saying? Absolutely. It was really, really weird. So these... The breed hadn't changed, there was no external breed. The way they'd been fed, the way they'd been maintained hadn't changed. Nothing like that whatsoever. And presumably that's a, a big loss to the farmers, to the people that were reliant on that industry. Massive you know, chunk. That's massive, massive impact on the economy of North America. Literally that right income there. dropping dead. Yeah, it was huge. It was, it was massively huge. Thus, obviously, the American government at that point had a very big vested interest to investigate why this was happening. Why were these cows randomly dying? Of? Was it just cows? It was cattle, yeah, cows at this, at this point. It was cows mm. and it was all across North America. That's not a small amount of geographical area. Mm. So, dying of massive internal hemorrhage and nobody could really figure out what was going on. So, the plot thickens slightly. So in America, there is a very classic plant that grows as part of the, fo- the foliage that the cattle will eat as part of the grass. It's called sweet red clover. So sweet red clover is, well, it grows naturally in America. It's a completely benign plant. It doesn't do anything at all. It's effectively grass. Cows have eaten it for years and years and years. Nutritional for them. We didn't know much about it at all, apart from the fact that red clover is a very classic herbal medicine. Again, used in the Americas for years. And it's had some reports of being an estrogen receptor agonist. So sometimes herbal red clover was used by women of a certain age to boost fertility. Mm. So this was a herbal thing. Now, nobody could link that to anything that was going on with these cattle that were just hemorrhaging left, right and centre. Or could they? Or could they, indeed. <laughs> so... Dun, dun, dun. That's it. Yeah, our scientist steps in. So what was happening is these farmers were obviously, they were getting grass, they were creating it into hay, drying it, uh, and the cattle were eating it. They've been eating it for years and years and years and years and years and there was no problems, but all of a sudden they're dying of uh, hemorrhagic problems. So one very clever epidemiologist at the time was looking at the problem and realised that there were higher patterns of these cattle dying of hemorrhagic problems in the damp months of the year, so the winters and autumns and early springs of the year. So effectively they found that when the hay was getting damper is when these cattle were dying at higher frequencies, Mm. which interested them. But again, they couldn't really necessarily pin it down to anything in particular. It took a little bit more investigation to find that in the 1920s, there were particular fungal pathogens that were introduced to the American homelands. Okay. And this was partly because of migration to America at that time point Okay. from foreign lands. So it turns out that particular fungal pathogens, so some of the penicillamine type pathogens, were introduced to America at that time point. And what was discovered was 
damp dampness in the red clover hay was a brilliant breeding ground for some of these fungal pathogens. Okay. So Which were, then the cows were eating. Yeah, absolutely. So they were eating this weird fungal type hay. That was the theory. But that being said, the vets were still a bit confused because they didn't show any signs of infection or fungal infection. So the original plan was, well, this fungus is coming in, cattle must be very sensitive to it, and they're... Let's give them an antifungal. Yeah, let's give them an antifungal, let's give them some fluconazole or whatever the vet equivalent fluconazole is, or amphotericin B or whatever, and that wasn't helping in the slightest whatsoever. So it had something to do with this fungus, but it wasn't a fungal infection. So okay. nothing to do with infection. So it thickened more and more and more and more. So nobody really quite, quite clocked it. They realised it must have something to do with this fungal stuff that was going on in the hay. So there was a big drive in all of North America to try and eradicate these fungal pathogens all across the country. And it wasn't really doing anything whatsoever at all. I'm imagining Donald Trump declaring war on fungal pathogens right now. We will not take... That's more Clinton than That's Trump. more Clinton. Well, yeah, That's not that Trump. Was, yeah, that was Ray Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I really don't like fungal pathogens. Bad guys, they're bad guys. They're bad guys, I really don't like them. I'll tell you what, I really don't like them. And then um, we're going to fund uh, Amphotery. Oh God, my, my, my <laughs> Trump is terrible. Good isn't an impression podcast. Absolutely. So, okay, let's, so let's move on. So a couple of years went by and the economy of the American cattle industry went down massively in about a three, four year period. And, you know, people lost their jobs and stuff like that. It was a, quite a big problem. So there was one particularly dedicated farmer who had lost a small fortune off five to six ranches that he owned of cattle. His cattle were just like dying left, right and centre. He couldn't afford to maintain his farms, he had to close, close them down. And so one day he decided that he had to get to the bottom of it because it wasn't a reasonable explanation of what was going on. So he went to his local research centre, he lived in Wisconsin, and he went to his local research centre once one of his cattle had just died and said, this is the last straw. He gutted his cattle, drained the blood out, filled a bucket of blood. So he had about four litres of blood of this cattle. He went to a Wisconsin research area and he met a local scientist there and appealed to him to try and do some further study into the mechanism by which um, the cattle were dying. This scientist at that point was, funnily enough, had a haematology background but didn't know anything about the cattle problem at the time and became very interested in it. So he took this bu bucket of blood and did various analyses on it, um, which apparently hadn't been done at the time, and he found a very novel thing, which he found that the, the blood samples that were given had an incredibly elevated prothrombin and thrombin time, mm -hmm. which he found was very strange um, compared to other cattle that he would have expected. And at that point, he said that was a considerable anomaly and maybe explaining why this hemorrhage was happening. So he was trying to link why this fungal pathogen could be related to an elevated prothrom prothrombin time. So this led to him applying for a PhD grant through the University of Wisconsin, and he did a six-year PhD trying to figure out what the wow. hell was going on. That's impressive. Six years for this guy's PhD. And after his six years, he came to a very clever discovery. So he isolated a specific compound in the blood that he believed was causing this prothrombin elevation time. And he called this compound, 
Kumadin. So he postulated that this natural chemical, and do you remember we talked about uh, red clover, the herbal use for, um, for that plant originally was an estrogen receptor. Um, estrogen receptor agonist that was called, that helped with fertility and things like that. So he realized that the fungal pathogen was cleaving bonds in that, um, what was called uh, diestral coumarol, I think it was called, which is the, the estrogen component of it, cleaving it and creating this weird anticoagulant compound that they couldn't quite understand, which he called di dicumarol. Um, and he postulated that this byproduct was the thing that was causing the prothrombin times and effectively making people bleed to death. And he got his PhD and it was a breakthrough for the, well, the entirety of everything. They dried their hay, they removed red clover from the whole of the American North, stopped using it, and the cattle stopped dying, which was an incredible massive boost to the economy of the USA. So they'd figured it out, which was, which was brilliant. The cattle were saved, milk and beef was available for all. And they thought, how compound? can we make some... Uh, well, yeah, this how compound. We, we figured out this out compound. This. Everybody likes doing science for science's sake, but everybody wants to get some profit out of it. So the thought was that this is an excellent compound and it's got a lot of uses for a lot of different areas. What if we could employ it to not kill cattle, because it's very effective at killing cattle. <laughs> <laughs> not much money in that, though, exactly. killing cattle. I'll tell you where there is money in that. Killing rodents. <laughs> So this chap that synthesized the compound postulated it would be an absolutely fabulous pesticide. So he decided, let's use this as a form of rat poison. Let's market it as rat poison. If we use, put this in poison, they'll bleed out immediately almost. Problem was... It's not specific to rats. It's not specific Problem to... Problem number one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not specific to rats. And this version of dicumarol was very, very slow acting. It took quite a while for this to build up. It was killing cattle over the time of a month. It didn't need, he didn't need it to kill rats within a month. He needed, he needed it to be killed, you know, almost instantaneously. So as a good chemist that he was, he tried to isolate the compound and improve its structure to make it more potent. And he did. So he did about 150 variations on this um, dicumidin product. Uh, and he came up with one particular product, which was an absolutely fabulous one. It was much more potent, much more controllable, much more stable. And they were trying to figure out a name for it. And he'd already come with dicumarol, which was the previous one. He couldn't call it that. So he decided to name it after the research center. What was the research? Where was the re research center that I told you earlier? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. What does that stand for? Wharf. Wharf. So they called it Warfarin. Excellent. So that's where the name Warfarin comes from. It's got nothing to do with coumarins or coumarols. They called it that because it was discovered in the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So, as it stood, it was an incredibly effective pesticide. It pretty much revolutionized the rat-killing game. <laughs> As it stood. For those in the know. You know those people? Wow, I mean, that's... Uh, there was that's these, uh, you know what, there were these peasants using mousetraps. <laughs> you know, those mousetrap things. And um, this just changed the game. Changed the game. Literally, actually. yeah. It's a big cheese. It was a momentous Way. thing. Well, cheers, well, cheers well, to that. Well, that's incredible. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs>
And so it was incredibly effective. It was one of the best selling pesticides between 1940 and 1980. Brilliant stuff. It's still used today. But obviously, as science goes on, they realized it would be even better if we could use it for human consumption. At this point, we had the heparins. The heparins were just, just on the table. Um, unfractionated heparin, which was a great drug, which everybody loved, but obviously was almost unusable in normal day-to-day -day life. The theory was that if we can get warfarin right, we can give these people anticoagulants to date regularly. So it went into clinical trials as a hu for human consumption and passed its clinical trials, had massive effects on preventing stroke and PE in AF, had massive effects in patients with already had pulmonary embolism. Um, the most famous case was it was originally marketed for uh, secondary prevention of MI, and who was one of the first patients who ever took it in America after it got a license? Was it a president? It was. Oh, interesting. Roosevelt? No. Nope. Uh, what decade? Uh, I think this would have been the 50s? seventh. No, no, it's a bit. Oh, late. was it Lyndon Johnson? No, it wasn't Lyndon Johnson. Ah, oh, well, it couldn't have been Kennedy because it wouldn't have helped his. So it was Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower. Let's get busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just a, a, it's just full of the, the president. Um, Love it. President impressions from you today. Can so I... it's quite famous. So Eisenhower had an MI whilst in office okay. and um, he was prescribed warfarin. One the, they say he was one of the first patients ever to receive warfarin after it. It's it quite experimental for It was very experimental. For president. Yeah. The, evidence, the evidence was that good for it. Um, so he Plus was prescribed it was that warfarin. not nothing really. Well, yeah. there wasn't many, but he wanted it. The evidence was good. Obviously, we should say these days, warfarin is not licensed for <laughs> a secondary prevention of MI. Actually, that's been proven to be quite poor evidence these days um, time it was but it did give Eisenhower um, a good reason and I don't believe he had another MI <laughs> it might have worked I don't know. got him through his presidency um, so that's the story of Warfarin as we say and we thought that was uh, I just thought that was quite an interesting one it was very interesting it was yeah. is it still used in rat poison because well, uh, patients will say it's that cliche isn't it of why am I taking rat poison? So there are still um, there are still pesticides marketed today that are coumarin based. Cool. As we, as it stands. So take home points: the re warfarin is a coumarin. The reason we call it a coumarin is it's a coumarin derivative from red clover, sweet mm -hmm. red clover. Mm -hmm. Does Even, the plant still exist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, it's still cultivated. Available. It's still a still a legitimate thing. It's the so the, the key point was that the the coumarin product in the red clover was is completely inactive it's completely harmless it's the fungal pathogen that gets into the leaf that cleaves the coumarin bond oxidizes it and makes it into your lethal anticoagulant product so it's just a real freak real freak moment of nature well as we say the word the word we use is serendipity we do like fleming with his penicillin absolutely serendipity is a brilliant word absolutely just got lucky just got lucky happy happy lucky Happy no, coincidence. Not for the cows. <laughs> well, the cows died in the name of science. So oh, absolutely. Cheers to the cows who Cheers. died in science. Cheers. Cheers. Wonderful. Uh, so, what do we think of the wine so far, guys? It's, um, so it's quite. I'm just having a little look it's at it. It's a very easy, very fruity quaff. wine. I mean, the, the the bottle's gone now already. Yeah, it's um, gone. So I better do my story quickly. But what do we think, guys? Mm. 
I think it poured, so when I poured it, it was, it's, it's a real ruby red pour. It's like, not a Pinot pour, it's more like a Merlot pour. It's got good, it's, it's got boozy legs. You can see it's got really boozy legs. It's quite mm. thick stuff. Nice and fruity notes. Very, yeah. Sort of. Very drinkable. Mm. It's very easy drinking stuff. Mm. You're right, it's got fruits, all like berries. But it's... Not herby, it's like ground spicy almost at the end. Mm. Um, so where do you think my story comes from? Guessing Italy. 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 Italia. Yeah, so I do apologise if any of my pronunciations are massively off. Uh, I do apologise and we, we work with quite a few Italian nurses, Canal and I, uh, who may not be happy with some of what I'm about to do to their mother tongue. Um, <laughs> I thought, why not start, I, I, I'm a doctor, I went to medical school. Alright, don't why? post. <laughs> Alright. Alright, fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did go to medical school. No, no I've been watching too. I've been watching suits, so I just want to emphasize the fact that you know I did get my degree. I do have a degree. Um, but I thought, why not go to back to the very first medical school mm. and say what was medical school like at the very, very beginning. So we found that this is just I'm sorry, I know I'm interrupting, but No, we, go for it, can I? I swear I've been to like five different schools in Europe that claimed to be the first medical Most school in Italy. Europe. We just came back from, we literally just the came back from Italy and they claimed to fame it and I'd be interested if you... Where in Italy? Bologna. We came oh, oh, guys, do you want to do my story? Do you want to do my story? Is it actually Bologna? It is Bologna. We're, we're going, we're, we're not going to go straight to Bologna. Okay. Because there is somewhere before that that technically wasn't a university. I feel like I've stole your thunder now. You have kind of stole my thunder. Yeah, I let you go on with your bleeding cows, but you know, never mind. Right, so we're going to go back to the Middle Ages. Okay, guys? Way back. Way back when. So we're going to go back to the 11th, 12th century. Okay. What do you think life expectancy was like in Europe at that time? 18th century. 11th, 12th. Oh my god, sorry, 11th century. Pre Pretty poor. 40s. 40s, yeah. 30s. 30s to 40s. 35. Yeah. 30 to well, 35. Uh, Bella, you work in Ovs and Gagney. How many kids died in childbirth, do you reckon? What, how, how many kids? Yeah, what you... percentage of kids do you reckon? Oh, I'd say around what? about a good. 45. Over that. Uh, um, you're going, you shot over. Uh, 20%. So about one in five oh, kids died in childbirth. Cynic. So it was, uh, so it was a, a bad I don't believe in time. medieval childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were, we, we'd have peaked in medieval times. We were in our dotage. This is true. I'd, I'd be already, people be going to me, well, you've wasted your life, Jamie. That's it now. It's time for you to, Coming you know, to the end now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, at the time, certainly over here, so the first hospital in England was built in um, 937, uh, by the Saxons. Um, and pretty much over here, it was all led really by monks and nuns and was pretty much what we would call a hospice. So you were dying, you were old, you were... 35 <laughs> yeah, and you were you know you were infirm it was very christian based you know love thy neighbor you know let's pray for them and pretty much that was all they could really do mm. and it's actually worth saying that um you know the the first medical school here in the uk wouldn't actually come until 1726, the proper medical school, and that was the University of Edinburgh. So we're a good few hundred years away from yeah. us actually having medical school over here. But in Italy, 
Mm. Things were moving on a little bit ahead of themselves. So we're going to go to the southern Italian city of Salerno. Sal- I know where that is, Salerno. So do I, it's in the south of Italy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Southwestern Italy, to be precise. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're going to go to what is called the Scola Medica Salernitana. I apologise for what I've just done with saying that. Um, but this is, in theory, the first ever medical school, although it didn't count as a university because all it did was medicine. And you had to do more than medicine. You had to cover more courses than medicine to be a university. Hmm. So Bologna claims to be the university because it did more courses than medicine. Uh, but this place just did medicine. Right. So it therefore was a medical school, not a university. Mm-hmm. In 1050, it wrote one of the first ever written records of Western medicine, which was called the Passionarius. Um, and it's from this that we get a lot of our medical terms, such as cauterize. So that comes from that. Mm. He, he Latinized Greek terms, essentially, and in so doing created some terms that we still use today. And that's, oh. that's, that's one of this, this book that he wrote. Um, amazing, you could quite say quite amazingly, they actually also had girls there. And we know what this. The hell? They had female medical students. Do you know how we know Controversial. this? Do you gonna guess how we know that they had female medical students? Their husbands wrote it down. No. <laughs> it's even more funny than this. I like this girl. I like the sound of this girl. So um, somebody wrote something about a girl called Agnes and um, I'm gonna it's in Latin. Um, Ut ferum magnus juvenus sic attratit Agnes which basically translates as Agnes attracts the boys like iron to a magnet. <laughs> Go Agnes. Love so it. I think cheers to Ma- Agnes, Love that, Agnes. <laughs> who uh, was, was being written about as uh, attracting the, uh, the boys like iron to a magnet. I think she got far in her career. <laughs> um, and they wrote a load of, there's a lot of stuff that they wrote from that, from, um, from the medical school uh, about how to look after head wounds um, there was even a bit about how to, if you came across somebody who'd been stabbed and they had intestines hanging out, there was a bit about how you had to, if they had cold intestines, you were to take the intestines of a just slaughtered animal, wrap them around the human's intestines to keep them warm, and then <laughs> push them inside, back inside, and then you leave a hole to allow all the pus and stuff to drain out. You call it? I mean, wow. Isn't basic that, principles. Isn't that basically, basically yeah. what we do now? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Kind of. And uh, yeah, quite alarming that that was a frequent enough event mm. even then to merit a. Well, imagine all the people were fighting over Agnes. Well, I guess. Yeah, who even needs a CT abdo, really? <laughs> just, just wrap some intestines around it. Um, Maybe we needed some of your cows. <laughs> um, and the link in this story, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these two completely random stories. Yeah, um, yeah and. Um, so obviously Catholicism, you couldn't dissect humans, so they dissected pigs, because uh, that was felt that their anatomy was quite similar to humans. I still do that, yeah, yeah, no, we do, still do that today. So you know, I, we do thoracotomy courses where we use pigs and things like that. So yeah, we use pig valves, absolutely. So yeah, pig yeah. valves, pig hormones. We still use pig insulin these days. Yeah. Do we still use pig heparin? And our favourite well, drug, low molecular heparin. Low molecular heparin is usually derived from pig. Pig at some intestine. Point. Yeah. 
Gosh. There you go. See, see, mm. this is what we're doing it. Um, they also, so if you think about Twitter now, with people putting funny things out on Twitter about education, they kind of invented that concept. So they would print little witty comments about medicine and they would release them for people to read. And it was like witty little poems about looking off, you know, about um, medicine and things. Nice. Um, they printed those for the first time in 1480. Um, originally 362 and then it originally it went up to 3520 so printing out these little ditties and witty witticisms about looking after your body and things like that although i'm not sure how many people were able to read them <laughs> um, but then by 1224 the holy roman emperor frederick ii said that if you wanted to be a doctor in the in naples you had to have gone to this uh, medical school so it was all it was kind of you know this is where you need to go if you want to be a doctor you know it's quite interesting but they weren't a university they were a medical school so then enter the university of bologna what can you tell me about the university of bologna then claims to be the oldest university it's a beautiful place we drove past it and it was a hell of a campus rivaling oxford in terms of how nice it looked like it was amazing so that was so oxford um didn't start teaching medicine until the uh, 1100s, but Bologna University was founded in 1088. Uh-huh. How long do you think it took to study medicine at the University of Bologna? Oh God! How long to be a doctor? So this is so you can be a doctor. It's either going to well, be it? alarmingly so, short or yeah. alarmingly long. long. Okay. What's it? So these days it's what seven years to become a doctor, or five years of medical school and then two years of postgraduate training before you receive your full practice registration. So So is it? So yeah, is it obscenely less than that? Is it? I'm going to go back in the days of less checks. It's going to be shorter. Maybe it's going to take you two years. Okay. What do you think, Bella? Go the opposite and go ten. Bella's going ten. What do you think, Kim? Oh, see, I don't because. Back in the day, if you you were kind of learning for the sake of learning and taking mm. your time it's more over a scholar it, and, type yeah, situation. you know, developing your own theories and making it up as you went along a little bit. So I'm I'm leaning towards the longer time. Um, okay. But I. <laughs> so four years. I'm wrong. Four years. Four years. So it was a four-year course. Four-year course. How many lectures do you think you had in those four years? Four years at university you were, you were a gentleman, a scholar. I don't think you'd have many. I think back in the day it would be all Practical. facilitated research, wouldn't it? So what do you think? How many physical lectures? So four years, one lecture a year. Maybe. One lecture a year. <laughs> <laughs> one lecture a year. Going off one, year, one lecture a year, maybe there could be like four or five a year. I'd say no more than about 20 lectures. Okay. What do you guys think? I'm, I'm going to... Back to 300. <laughs> <laughs> Loads. Why not? I'm trying to work out how many It felt like 300 when I was at uni. <laughs> I think we easily went to 300 lectures. So 46. 46 oh, lectures wow. over four years was what it took for you, you to, to become a, a doctor. Um, you said 20. So, okay, fair. so they, it was quite, it was a very democratic um, place. So students chose their professors. Nice. <laughs> they elected their professors. Wow. And they um, elected the cardinals as well, who would preside over their functions. So the students had a lot of power during their four years and 46 lectures. So 
what would you have done, Kim, four years of med school with 46 lectures with all that free time that you'd have had? Gosh, well, I... <laughs> I... Oh. I mean, I, I was a bit strange. I spent a lot of time in the dissection lab. That was my kind of favourite horn of medical school. So you'd have been with the pigs? <laughs> I'd have been with the pigs and with the grave robbers, I guess. Wow. <laughs> that probably suited medieval teaching. It's yeah, quite nice great. to be. Yeah. Get your hands um, in. I'd have drank, drank wine. Probably. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, wine similar like, to this. If you're in, if you're in Italy, why the hell not? Um, so... But although it was quite revolutionary in some ways, they were still reading about the writings of Hippocrates and Galen. So these are the, the Greek doctors. Mm. But they were reading them in a very... They were taught to read them in the style of the philosopher Peter Abelard. And he was a religious philosopher who wrote a work called Sic et Non, which was basically a way of looking at two religious texts and comparing them. So they were taught to compare two medical texts, but compare them in a way that a religious philosopher would compare them. So you can see, although it's Are science... Without evidence. That, well, you know, so there's a lot of religion still in that, in that you were still doing it that way. Um, and before you even went to medical school, you had to be admitted to the clergy. So you had to be a member of the clergy before they would even let you through the door to, be, to start studying medicine. So I always thought that it was two set like the the three original professions, weren't they? The clergy, mm. medicine, and law. Was it? Mm. They the three original professions. And prostitution. <laughs> Edit that I'm bit not, out. I'm not sure there was a university for that one. <laughs> you didn't go to that Nottingham. Been... Hey! <laughs> Got to keep that. In. <laughs> okay, uh, cool. And as well as studying medicine, uh, so you, you've had to join the clergy. You're then doing your four years of medicine. You also have to study the seven classical liberal arts. Oh my god! So this is what everybody at university had to study. I mean, is that we still have to do that today? You have to prove well you've got all the Well, this is it. Yeah. And then you stop them all when you mm. work. <laughs> so the first, so the first classical art, classical liberal art. I like the sound of grammar. So <laughs> that is a lost art. <laughs> so they would know the difference between less and fewer. Um, <laughs> Amy's biggest bugbear. <laughs> well, I, I got told I split infinitives. <laughs> I was like, it's the most outrageous thing I've ever been accused I of. I have never knowingly split an infinitive. <laughs> um, rhetoric, so public speaking, mm. logic, geometry, arithmetic, music, and astronomy. So you're creating very well rounded people leaving university after their four years and 46 lectures. I like that. I like that. I, yeah. I feel like I've met too many doctors that weren't versed in astrology. Well, this <laughs> is true. And, you know, certainly around those times, there was quite a lot of crossover. My God, the first time I met Dr. Thomas and he read my palm, I was... <laughs> I was amazed. I was well, like, now this man can practice medicine. <laughs> so this brings us on to what were they actually being taught as well as all this. So the four humours. So you guys, I'm sure you've... Of all have heard of the four humours so nowadays we would say about homeostasis and this idea of balance they had this idea of balance back then but obviously they didn't know about hormones and things like that so they thought that we were made up of four things phlegm blood black bile and yellow bile yeah yeah I have read so this. these were these yeah. things and disease was caused by too much of one thing mm -hmm. so um, if Canal you came to me 
and you were coughing up, I would say that you had too much phlegm, you were phlegmatic, and so therefore you were coughing up that excess phlegm and that was your disease. Was this what you told me last week? This is literally what I diagnosed that. Yes, thank you very much. This is a theory that the ancient Egyptians had invented, Mm. and so it was was still going on from there. You know where I learned this, just just as a... No, go for it, go for it. I actually learned this from Star Trek Next Generation. Brilliant. (laughs) There was a there was Captain an epi- Kirk? yeah there was an epi- oh, no, no, Captain no, no, no. Picard next no, generation Picard yeah Picard uh, he went, he visited some random civilization that practiced that medicine mm. and they were all dying. <laughs> but it wasn't working well. It wasn't working at that point. Yeah. So if you were in imbalance, you had dyscrasia, whereas the balance of in, where everything was in balance, we would call eucrasia. And there was this also this idea that your personality and your environment was linked together. Eucrasia. <laughs> so if you were so if you were an angry person for example you were more likely to overheat and have a fever just as if you lived near a volcano you would be more likely to overheat because you're in a hot yeah, environment yeah, yeah, so it's all these different things so actually doctors would say to you you need to not you need to be in a mild climate not in extremes and you need to stay nice and calm so in a way there's this mindfulness idea as well that you need to be very relaxed and at peace with yourself so yes, you know, makes sense. nice and balanced mm-hmm. um i do want to mention pharmacy um and what was being taught back then cool. this will probably make you two cringe um, have you heard of the doctrine of signatures? No, but please tell us more. Well, okay, I've got to, I might know the concept, but not the name. Okay, so this was something that Garland came up to, came up with, and the Christian philosophers really liked it. And it's essentially this idea that um, God wouldn't give you disease unless He made the cure really obvious, and He would make the cure obvious in nature. Well, so, there's, there's actually a lot of evidence for that, just, to say, just throwing that out there. A lot of drug discoveries are from nature. Well, this is it. So, so say, you know, Bella, you come to me and you've got an eye infection, and mm-hmm. I go, ah, oh, you've got an eye infection. I'd look at this flower that's called the eye bright flower, and this flower looks like the human eye. Therefore, that must be the cure. So I would give you some of its petals for you to take. And that's what they used to do. And they'd look like skullcap seeds, uh, looked like human skull, so they were given to chew on if you had a headache, because it looks like your skull. And this is the idea. This was medieval pharmacy. Like it. So when we said, like, deadly nightshade. Uh, <laughs> goodness only knows. Yeah, absolutely. That translates as makeup for sure, doesn't it? Absolutely. So it's like, give this to your person if they've got AF. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Of course, we would take blood from you as well to balance you, because you know why not. Leeches were widely used. That I know. They were. Well, that was that's like bloodletting, isn't it? That's that's the uh, the heat. Letting out the bad blood. Mm. Uh, And if I was to to take your blood, guys, uh, and I was a medieval doctor, I would be giving you um, some rose syrup uh, and the bone of um, a stag to 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 eat or to drink. or sugar mixed with precious stones such as an emerald. This was to strengthen your body while I was taken, taking blood from you. Nice. No doubt charging you a lot of money for those emeralds mm. that you were eating. Uh, or if you were a bit uh, not as rich, I could probably give you some lettuce or wine while you were ta- I was taking your blood. This, this is all Works sort of... for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, pretty much that's the, that was the kind of stuff that was being taught. Um, and... When they were saying like what does what causes disease, um, polluted air was blamed. So miasma. Well, still so. true. Still true today. Mm, absolutely. Um, so um, 
a scholar Giovanni Villani uh, in 1347 when the plague came along. He blamed the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars in the sign of Aquarius. So it was all because obviously he had his astronomy oh background. God, I'm an Aquarian as well. He was blaming all of that. Uh, whereas another one, Gabriel de Musis, noted that the illness was more dangerous during an eclipse. So there's all this idea that the, the planets were... And, and we have that idea because uh, that's why influenza is called influenza, because it's the influence of the moon was believed to be behind the disease. That's why that's, it's called influenza. That's, that's interesting. Very cool that's fact. very QI, that. Little factoid. There you go. Mm. Um, uh, Gentili do Fligno, I probably said that really badly, I apologise, um, blamed uh, a tremor. He was a professor at the University of Bologna. He blamed a tremor just before the plague, plague hit, and he said it must have opened up pools of stagnant air and water, and that's what polluted people. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea of pollution mm, and it being spread. Yeah, there isn't this idea of it obviously being a germ. They were centuries before that idea, but I still find that quite interesting. Hmm. Um, and of course, Dem- and Demusis said that if you went, if you, you were a doctor attending the sick, you would need to be near an open window or have something to your nose, such as um, a sponge with vinegar or, or some posies or something, because it was nice smells and things mm. like that. Well, because presumably this is still, as you, as you mentioned, sort of dissection of humans wasn't permitted so we didn't actually know what what our insides looked like what was going on let alone any sort of uh, cellular level molecular level um so you know doing the best no absolutely there was one guy who was given papal permission to dissect the dead and he was called Guy de Choliac and he was allowed to do it because he survived the plague so he actually had the plague while he had it he drank wine and he lanced his buboes daily so he basically got drunk and popped all of his spots that he had the big buboes and the pope that's why we all went into medicine you like picking spots right pretty well (laughs) not myself but yeah speak for yourself kim right (laughs) um and the pope went you're all right you can you can actually dissect human bodies so he would dissect plague victims after they died (laughs) And he would look at uh, look at what was going on, and he came up with some theories, and he'd see all the fluid in their lungs that we would probably say is some sort of you know inflammatory infective process. But he said it was evidence of infe- of polluted air. So he basically told the Pope to sit between two burning pyres, and that would um, that would um, you know cleanse. Make, cleanse the air. And basically, the Pope sat between two fires, and that's how he got through the the plague. Without well, getting probably sterilise the air. To be fair, well, no rats going to go near you, yeah. are they? Yeah, true. In the, yeah, in the fire. Yeah, um, and actually, um, Guy de Choliac was also one of the first people to say that surgeons needed university training. I mean, what a fun so they, sponge! There you go. Well, this is the old barber surgeons, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah. he was the one who actually went. No, if you are cutting into people, yeah, you should probably you be educated. Need to go to uh, to uh, university, um, and yeah. So I mean, I think it's nearly there, but not quite. I think is the idea when you when you they got an idea. They definitely got an idea. There was some standards there, I suppose, weren't there? Yeah, that's the key thing. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that they were very good at documenting things because there were there were scholars as well as which probably were not so much now and so actually um 
these are the people who were amongst the first doctors to start to recognize diseases and disease patterns and we can actually read back and go ah oh, that sounds like that disease by the way that they've described it because they describe so many days of fever so we're looking at back at this and it was around this time we worked out that leprosy and smallpox were actually contagious Mm -hmm. And because they were actually going, ah, you know, Kim had smallpox and then, you know, then Jamie got smallpox and maybe it's <laughs> contagious, you know, that kind of idea. Oh my God, I let these people into my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably should have told you. Um, the other, uh, but I suppose the, the, only, the, I'm very glad for many reasons I wasn't around during that time. Um, one of the first books published around that time called Fascicula, Fasciculus Medicinae, which was published in 1491. Um, had a load of thing about how to diagnose diseases, including a whole section on urine, including tasting it, uh, looking at it, uh, studying it, smelling it, and how you could use urine to diagnose disease, What's which we do still do. Yeah. But I'm very glad I don't have to sniff without, it without the or taste it or taste it I'm, or anything yeah, like that. I'm glad we've got the wine option instead tonight. So that was that was apple juice the last time I saw you in ED doing that. Yes, mate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I thought it was strange. Did it smell so, like pears? So I always think like, so we always think like you've got the Dark Ages, and then you've got the Renaissance, and then there's this period that everybody thinks is like a barren wasteland, but there was stuff going on. Yeah, there was stuff going down, wasn't there, I suppose. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much, uh, that was the story really of, the first ever medical school. Yeah, the and what evolution medical of education school of, of um, like the ages. evolution of education in the, the pedagogy what is it, pedagogy pedagogy. 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 Pedagogy of medicine. Mm -hmm. Initial pedagogy of medicine. Well, cheers to that. Cheers. cheers. So that is uh, that's our two stories. Um, Kim, have you got a story? Uh, no. I I am post nights and can hardly think straight, so no stories from me. Okay. Marvellous, fair enough. Um, so I suppose it only comes to us really, what do we think about the Celice Salentino uh, 2013? I think it's I think it's had time to breathe now whilst we've been doing this and it's, it's it has actually changed a little bit. I think it's got a little more tannin to it. It's a little bit drier. Could be because my mouth has got more dry because I've been drunk drinking more wine. <laughs> so that's absolutely possible, but I think it's a, it's a lovely wine. It's very easy drinking. Mm. It's definitely got booze in it because you can tell by the how thick it is. I think it's for me. It starts with berries and it finishes with um, spice. It finishes with spice, but it's mm. but it's really nice. It's like cinnamony, vanilla mm. almost mm. at the end. Mm. But I actually really like it. I think it's an excellent wine. Mm. What do you think, Kim? It's good wine. Definitely. <laughs> I think it's good. I think I think you always have to. So for me, you arguably you have to eat with wine to fully understand it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is where we get should bring out a plate of pasta. Or mm. podcast with wine. That's it. It's good podcasting wine. Mm. What do you think, Bella? Very easy, easy drink. I mean, halfway through the podcast, we'd already finished the bottle, so that yes. says enough that's about a, this wine. That's true. I can tell it's clean. I think it's probably filtered somehow because mm. it's not got any sediment in it or anything, but, it's, but it is quite heavy and it's quite thick. So, it's... Mm. so uh, Vivino, the, the Vivino app gives this a 3.9 stars out of 5 average rating after 1,536 ratings. So We've got to, we've got to be careful here because we're setting a standard now. For we are setting a standard for future podcasts. Mm. I don't think we should have a star system. We should have a quack system. <laughs> uh, so... 
How many quacks out of five are you going to give this wine? As Canals just said, this is a dangerous precedent. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I'd be happy enough from the for the amount of wine I've drank, drank over the years, which is which is considerable. I'd like to say. I'd we should probably say drink responsibly. We should probably say we advocate responsible drinking. Definitely. None yeah, of us have should. work tomorrow. None of us have got work tomorrow. Uh, we're in a controlled environment. We're, yeah, we're in our Plenty own home. Of water. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, this is our first glass well of fed. wine. We have not. We're, we're not over. We haven't been over drinking wine or anything like that. There um, we go. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's. it's, it's so, it's how many stuff. quacks out of five are we going to give this? I think. So I. Apparently, I'm starting right. <laughs> <laughs> so because we'll do an average. So we could do an average. You know. I mean, you're you're talking about tannins. Are you an expert? Well, I mean, like, so I, I. I think it's a really it's a good wine. I, I'd be happy to give it. I I, I, can we go like can we go into decimal places for quacks is that reasonable can one do a decimal place for a quack can we do an eighth partial of a quack eighth is strong <laughs> I was going to give it I was, we can do partial we can do partial quacks I think I was a quack a quack a quack that's, <laughs> that's half a quack isn't it so we're saying like in decimal points so I think I'm, I'm torn because I think it's better than 3.5, but I don't think it quite serves a four. But I'd probably say it's a four, so I'll give it four quacks. So Canal gives it four quacks. Bella, what do you think? Solid three and a half. Three and a half quacks from Bella. Kim, I'm happy with a four, but I'm post nights slightly delirious. I'm going to go with a three and a half, I think. I'm going to go with a cautious, this is a very fine wine, but possibly suffering from the fact it's our first wine, Uh, which means that we've given it an average of three quacks. So this is a three quack wine. How is that? That's not That can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid your math doesn't make sense. Three and a half plus four plus four plus three and a half. Divided by four. Oh, that's why. Three point seven five. There we go. I think that I so I wanted to give it three point seven five, though I can't give it point two five quack because you just can't quack in that way. <laughs> it would be a quack. It would be a quack, and nobody can quack. That's just that's just distasteful for the tongue to do a quack. <laughs> So, cheers everyone. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, that was the history of Warfarin and the history of the first ever medical schools. And that was the Salice Salentino 2013, uh, which gets 3.75 quacks. Excellent. There you go. A podcast about history of medicine and wine drinking. The podcast you never knew you needed. Absolutely. And if, if people want to hear more of you, Jamie, where, where do they go? Uh, where do they go, Canal? Uh, well, they can. I don't know if there's going to be a new website, but Take Orally is definitely a uh, wonderful place. If you to, want to be a bit more sensible, yeah, Take Orally is our other podcast for more sensible medical education that doesn't involve wine. And if you want to support this podcast, please feel free to send ten pounds to work. <laughs> <laughs> right. And on that note, uh, goodbye, Kim. Goodbye, Doctor Thomas. Pleasure. Goodbye, Bella. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye, Kim. Goodbye, Jamie. Goodbye, everyone. Oh.